you have your Bibles, why don't you turn to Mark 3. Mark chapter 3, this is the word of the Lord. We are going through Mark, the gospel of Mark, which is the eyewitness account of our salvation. Not instructions on how to save people, how to be your own savior, how to get saved, but this is eyewitness testimony, being one of the gospels, this is eyewitness testimony of someone else saving us. Mark 3, we'll pick it up in verse 7 and read to verse 12. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea, and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Let's pray that the Lord would bless our time here. Father in heaven, we thank you for these words, that they are not our own. They are not the words of a mere man, but they are the words of the living God, the same, uh, the same voice that spoke creation into being. And Lord, we pray that we would receive these words as your words, that we would respond the way that sheep respond to the voice of a good shepherd. Lord, our shepherd is good. You are our shepherd, and you have laid down your life for us. So let us respond as the sheep of the good shepherd. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, many people would claim to be Christians. Maybe they'd claim to be church people. I'm a churchman. Maybe they claim even just to simply be interested in Jesus and not interested in the church. There are a lot of people who would be willing to be identified with him. And we might call these people a crowd. A crowd of people who maybe don't even belong to him. And one of the things that we see in the Gospels and we see in the rest of Scripture is the difference between a crowd and a church. A crowd compared to those people who have him. A crowd is different from simply people, uh, is, crowd, is different than people who belong to him. And, and what we have just seen here as we've read this portion of Mark chapter 3, we see a false church gathered. A false church is a crowd. A false Christian is, a, is merely a member of a Jesus crowd. The thing with a crowd is that a crowd is easily dispersed. There are uh, portions of our police service and even military dedicated to the art of dispersing a crowd. A crowd disperses when trouble comes or when public sentiment changes. Being a member of a crowd does not rescue you from God's judgment. It doesn't rescue you from hell. 
But as we've sung today, oh, we sung some beautiful words from Scripture. The church of Christ is not merely a crowd. It's Christ's very body, which tribulation, trial, temptation cannot separate from Him, which rescues us from hell than the just punishment for our sins. Because we're not merely associated with Christ. We haven't simply been drawn into the vicinity of Christ and the gospel and Christians, but because we belong to Him and He has been punished instead of us. That we might have what He finds most precious, which is to have God as our beloved Father. And this passage is given to us to help us that we might see a crowd. That to people who aren't really familiar with the gospel, people might see this and they might mistake this crowd for a church. So that we could examine ourselves and in contrast to see if we are in fact in Christ. So that we might see our state and run to him for sure salvation. Because it is very likely the case that there are people here with us today who might think they're part of the church of the living God, part of Christ's people, but merely are part of the crowd that has assembled around him. The first point that Mark and therefore the Lord Jesus wants us to see here is that Christ drew an international crowd. He drew an international crowd. I wonder if you noticed that. It's a crowd that is, that is gathered around him simply based on interest. There's no commitment here to be part of this crowd that assembled around Jesus at the lake here. It didn't take any commitment. It's more like a boxing day sale. There's this great prize offered and everybody gathers around. People want to be one of the first people in so you get the best prizes. But there's not a church there. There's not a, a people or a, a nation or a family gathered there. It's a crowd. This is more like a Boxing Day sale that you see here. And one of the things that we see and we're supposed to see is that Christ drew an international crowd. Now this is very important because the Old Testament prophecies... The Old Testament prophecies, the, the scripture that was delivered before Christ came, they prophesied that the Messiah, the Christ, would be a king for all of Israel. It would be like the, his father David to unite all of Israel, to reign over them, to save all of Israel, not just part of Israel, but to rule over all the nation to save them from their enemies and also to make them holy, to be a people to make sure that this whole nation was one that honored God, that trusted his promises, kept his law, and was and delighted to live for him. But more than that, the Old Testament prophecies, which we've been reading, or we read in Isaiah as we went through that book, showed that he would be not just a king for all Israel like David, but a king for all the nations. He would, yes, he'd subdue all the pagan nations and he would convert them and they would all then be worshiping Israel's God. He would be the Messiah that, that the Old Testament prophesied would be one that would Messiahize all the nations or to Christianize people of all the nations. That was actually a necessary proof 
of Jesus being the Messiah, if Jesus didn't draw an international crowd, if people from all nations didn't come to him during his earthly ministry, then we could write him off as simply a, a, a merely a local rabbi, as a, a local god, one of the, the gods of the nations, a false god that was more like their culture than the god of the universe. And so here, this is part of the evidence that Jesus had to compile of being the actual Messiah, a Messiah for all peoples. The Old Testament, before Christ came, the New Testament after, makes it very clear that Jesus is a Christ for all peoples. There is no target market for the Lord Jesus Christ. Just a while ago, uh, I was out evangelizing with some of the brothers from the church here, and we came up to a, a small crowd, and uh, they were dressed in such a way that they, would, uh, they, they assumed, we would have assumed that they weren't the type of people that the gospel was for. And one of, the, one of the women there said, I'm pretty sure we're not your target market, whatever you're selling. But we went on to explain that the Bible forbids us from thinking that way. Christians are forbidden from thinking that there's something like a target market for the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a people, then you are one of the people, one of the kinds of people that Jesus died for and to be the, he was the Messiah of. Jesus is the Messiah for all peoples. That means every single people group needs him desperately. Sin is universal. And God is the universal God. And Christ's reign, as we saw in the Old Testament in Isaiah, is a universal reign. In Matthew 8, 28, it doesn't say that, that all authority in heaven and in Jerusalem was given to him. It says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. All things were given to him by his Father. Christ is the only Son of God, the only one able to save. And dear church, this is important for us to see that Jesus did not simply come to draw a crowd, but to a church, and it was a people of all nations. And this is an international one. There's no target market churches. Now, a while ago, a few years ago, I uh, had a friend who was an associate pastor at, at a church that's not local, not close by, so you don't have to worry about identifying which one. But that, the, that man was an associate pastor, and his boss essentially said the same kind of thing that these people said to us when we were evangelizing not long ago. This church wanted to reach different kinds of people, and so what they did is they split themselves up into different churches. Each was for a different target market. And they had a list of things that when you were preaching at this particular church, you could say, and at this particular church, you would not say. So they had the list of slang that they wanted the, the pastors to include in their service. Make sure you make a number of these kinds of slangs in these, in these ones. Make sure you dress in certain ways. And so there was a particular dress code for each type of people. It was pretty gross. The idea of gathering people based on something other than the gospel. These people are gathered together because they like jeans. These people are gathered together because they hate jeans. These people are gathered together because they like, they like felt brimmed, wide-brimmed hats. These people are gathered together because they don't know what that is. These people are gathered together because they love kids. These are people who are gathered together because they hate kids. These people are gathered together because they are gray hair. 
These people are gathered together because they hate people with gray hair. No, the only thing that we are permitted to gather people with is the gospel of the universal king, the Lord Jesus Christ, the creator of heaven and earth and all people. But dear Christian, I also want to assure you here that if you have thought that you are not the target market of the gospel because somehow Christ would not save you, that your sin is too great, you've been involved with people and that association has been, is too much for Christ to save you from, then you must also believe that that too is a lie. Christ came to save sinners and sinners of every single sort. You are the kind of person Christ came for. Not simply just to attract, but to make his very own. The second point that Mark and therefore the Lord Jesus wants us to see is that this crowd desired signs and wonders. I want you to notice what the crowd was drawn to. Let's read this in 7b to 10. When the crowd heard that he was going to save people from their sins. Nope. (laughs) When the crowd heard all he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Notice, they were not drawn to Christ, but they crowded around him because of his miracles. He had healed diseases miraculously. And we have already seen that he healed all kinds of diseases. He wasn't just a guy who could make a, an 8-level back pain, a 7.5-level back pain. That wasn't his specialty. He healed all kinds of diseases, blind and deaf, people who were mute, people who were amputees. He saved all kinds of people from their sicknesses. He had cast out demons. He had already turned water into wine. He will do greater things than these. He will raise the dead. He's going to raise Lazarus and a little girl. He's going to feed 5,000 men and their families not just modern small families. He fed, he's going to feed 5,000 men and their large families with five loaves of bread and two fish. But desiring to be healed does not mean that you have saving faith. That's enough to draw a crowd, but not a church. Desiring to be healed doesn't mean you have saving faith, even if you agree the only person you're going to ask to heal you is the God named Jesus. That's not saving faith. Notice that this crowd cared nothing about Christ. How do you know that? They were willing to risk Jesus' life. They were willing to crush him to death, and he knew it. Make sure we've got a boat, because I know what they're going to do. They do not love him. But true faith, true faith wants Jesus himself. True faith wants God. Now the signs that Jesus did, they proved that he was the Messiah. And the Old Testament, the prophecies that predicted his work, they promised that he'd be able to do these things. If a man claims to be the international Messiah, even if he draws an international crowd, but if he can't heal every disease, 
you should reject him as Messiah. He had to do these things. He had to prove that he was the son of God. He had to prove that he was the one whose life and death and resurrection would pay for our sins. But dear friends, his miracles did not prove that he could do miracles. They proved that he was the one our souls should love. He is the God that we sinned against whenever we've sinned. He's the God who created heaven and earth and who made the law. And he is the one whom we sin against and who have we become the enemy of. The one whom we were created to love and to be loved by. And therefore the one who would reconcile sinners to God. Many people came looking for signs and wonders not looking for Christ. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 12. I'm breaking one of the rules. You're not supposed to go to one of the other Gospels when you're preaching, but we're going to just once. Matthew 12, verse 38, illustrates this point very clearly. Then the scribes and Pharisees answered him. This is Matthew 12, 38. Then the scribes, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Pause. He had done hundreds of signs at this point already. Unpause. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth, sound familiar? To hear the words of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Thus far God's word. These people, the the scribes and the Pharisees, the leaders, the religious leaders of, of the people, they reserve the right to keep demanding signs. Jesus provided all the signs necessary to prove that he's the Messiah. And they're like, you have to keep doing signs and miracles for us. That's what we want. They, de- they, demanded the resi- they, they reserved the right to demand signs and also at the same time to say they don't believe him unless they, he keeps doing more signs. So the crowd that was gathered here is essentially, not perfectly, but essentially the same crowd that would crucify him. The signs weren't the issue. Proof is never the reason a person does not believe in the gospel. Proof is never the reason a person doesn't believe in the gospel. The question here, the problem is that they're not buying what he is selling. Or in this case, they're not buying or what he purchased with his blood and is giving to them for free. They're just not interested in that. Because what he is offering, and he proved with the signs, he, he's offering to be reconciled to the God that you are an enemy of. Your greatest enemy, which is the God of the universe, to now be reconciled to that God. They don't want that because he is their greatest enemy. He's offering to belong to that God. And not belong to that God as a peer, 
but to belong to that God as your father, as your king, as the head of the body, as your head, and as shepherd. He is offering to have God and to belong to God as his people. Now, dear friends, how is it that we draw people? When you're sharing the gospel with friends and family, how is it? Are we drawing a crowd or are we drawing a church? What do we tell people that Jesus came to do? You should become a Christian because? Are you telling them that he'll fix your life? Or that he will reconcile sinners to God? What is the miracle that we focus on? Do we focus on the fact that he heals the blind? Or what Jesus calls the sign of Jonah? Because remember, Jesus, Jesus was in the grave, and on the third day he rose from the dead. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days. So Jesus calls this the sign of Jonah. Do we focus on the healing of the blind or his death and his resurrection? An illustration might help the point, although I'm terrible at illustrations, so bear with me. Imagine that there is a nuclear power plant in meltdown. Also, I know nothing about nuclear energy. But imagine there is a nuclear power plant that is in meltdown. And everybody knows that there is one man on the earth who is qualified to be able to solve this problem. There is a person who's able to solve this problem. Now, this man, first of all, has to prove his identity. You need to know who the guy is in order for, you need to let the right man into this nuclear reactor to solve the problem. He has to first prove his identity. How silly would it be, once the man has proven his identity, to focus on his identification papers rather than the actual work, which was to save the reactor and the meltdown and to save the lives? Could you imagine the thing that people praise him for is the fact, oh, he's, oh his identification papers. Did you notice that? That's great. No, what's great about that man is that he saved people from a nuclear meltdown. And this is what his signs and wonders were meant to do, dear friends. And so this is a good question to apply to your own heart. What, what drew your attention to Christ? What was it? Maybe you were in the middle of a, an addiction, whether that be drugs or alcohol or pornography or gambling or some other addiction, and then you were promised that if you come to him, he'll rescue you from this. Maybe what drew you to Christ is the promise of a respectable life. I know a bunch of Christians, and they all lead pretty good lives, white picket fences, and you know, I kind of want that, and so maybe Christ will help me do this. Maybe it's connecting with the supernatural or the, the spiritual. Maybe you were promised that you would get supernatural powers if you became a Christian. But there is no such promises. Maybe it was help with your finances. Really struggling and I need to become a Christian to help me with my finances. Maybe you wanted a better marriage and you, you, were, you were told that you were drawn to Christ with the hope of having a better marriage. The same question can be asked not just what drew you to Christianity but what keeps you at church. Maybe it's Maybe you, you know you've got to keep going to church because of the, you'll lose the approval of your family or your friends or your social group. Dear friends, would you agree with Jesus that the only sign needed 
was the sign of Jonah. If this is the only miracle that he performed, was to die for your sins, to rise from the dead, to reconcile you to the God of whom your heart is the greatest enemy of, would that be enough? Was it eternal life that you wanted or was it eternal life with God? Were you only hoping for forgiveness of sins or were you also trusting Christ for freedom from sin? Oh, I want to be rescued, not just from the punishment of being an enemy of God. I also want to be rescued from being an enemy of God. I want to be his child now. There is the promise of life in the future, in the new heavens and earth, of life without pain, life without poverty, sickness, death, loneliness, life without fear or conflict. These things are surely promised us. And they are part of Christ's responsibility to put all things in submission to God. And it is something we're supposed to look forward to, but something that we would prefer this world to. We would prefer this world than to go to heaven if it meant that we would have God in this world along with suffering and if heaven meant us being apart from God. Moses said to God, it, when God said, you guys can go to Canaan, you can go to the promised land, all the blessings will be yours, a rich and beautiful land that will be yours, I'm just not going to go with you. And Moses says, we don't want to go if you're not going to be there with us. We'd prefer to be in the wilderness with you than to be in the promised land without you. Brother Carl read for us Psalm 84, verse, uh, the whole thing. I'm just going to read verse 10. This is the cry of people who've been drawn to Christ. Yes, he proved he was the Messiah. He had to with signs and wonders. But the thing that drew them to Christ for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Dear friends, if you're not a Christian, what do you think it would take to convince you? And Christians always have arguments. Well, you know, this, because of this, because of this. Sure, fine. But what would it take to convince you? Think about that. And then, and then ask yourself this. Ask yourself honestly if that would convert you. Or if you'd look for another reason not to believe. Are you really desiring to love God even more than yourself? Are you really desiring to give your life for him no matter the cost? Are you really desiring to be forgiven of your sins and be reconciled to God as now a child of God, but you just haven't had enough proof? Or do you want none of those things and proof is irrelevant? See, a church is gathered in many ways. Sorry, a crowd is gathered in many ways. But a church is gathered by the Holy Spirit of God giving new hearts to people to believe in Christ and to want the gospel, to want Christ. Now, a church gathers for reasons other than forgiveness of sins. We've, or, uh, 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 that's, we've seen that, unfortunately. But it also includes people who come for forgiveness of sins, and they do confess Christ as the one to do it, but they actually have not trusted in Christ for rescue, for sin. That's our third point, which is this. Many confessed Christ was the Son of God. Let's read 11 and 12 for this. Mark 3, 11 and 12. Many confessed Christ, that, uh, many confessed Christ was the Son of God. Verse 11. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not 
to make him known. Now, the crowd included those who were interested in miracles, for sure. Either for the show of the miracles or maybe for the benefit of the miracles. But it also included, what else did this crowd include? Demons. Christ showed his power over the works of Satan. In Genesis 3, right after the fall into sin, God promised that he'd send a Messiah. He'd send a Savior who would crush the head of Satan. And so Jesus is proving this. The demons now are forced to bow prostrate before Christ. This isn't regular demon activity. Before Christ, we see only one possession, only one demon possession, and that was the king, king Saul. And it's not like Satan got worse when Christ came, but God forced him, as we've seen, into this public battle that he doesn't want, and he doesn't normally do. He wouldn't want that. Forced into a situation where Christ would publicly tell them to shut up. In Philippians chapter 2, we're told that one day every knee will bow and every tongue that confess that Jesus is Lord. This includes Christians, but it also includes non-Christians and demons. Confessing that Jesus is the Son of God doesn't save you. Believing, trusting in the gospel does. The demons confess Jesus is Lord. They're being honest. In Matthew 7, verse 21, Jesus compares this to people. Matthew 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Romans chapter 10 picks up on this. Romans 10 verse 11. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Faith is how a person is saved. Now, if a person will not confess that faith with their mouth, if they will deny Christ before men, well, then they don't have faith. Are you counting on your belief that Jesus is Lord and that the Bible is true? Are you, can, are you counting on the fact that that will save you? That you, you know it's true. You know that Jesus is Lord and you know that the Bible is true. Are you counting on that faith saving you? Are you counting on the fact that you've said the gospel out loud? That you've prayed the prayer? You'll have the same fate as the demons. Saying the gospel isn't a magic spell, which people who don't uh, trust God, don't love God, don't want God, they, they can say in order to force him to do good things for them or accept them or forgive their sins. Dear friends, the gospel is much sweeter than that. The gospel is much sweeter than that. It is a reconciling trust 
What does the word reconciling mean? It means that you were an enemy and now you are made a friend. You were an enemy, but now you're made a son or daughter of God. So simply believing that Jesus died and rose from the dead, believing that that's true, doesn't save you. But it is a belief that trusts. What does it trust God for? This is important. What does saving faith trust God to do? It trusts God to reconcile you to God. Not simply to forgive your sins. Oh yes, that's what you're trusting for. But not only that. Because the demons would love to be forgiven as well. And they know that Jesus was the one who did it. Trusting in God, in the gospel of what Jesus has done, to give you God. To give you God as your Father, as your King, as your Lord, as the one who rules over you and the one that you love to submit to. Now perhaps you are a Christian who hears that and you are crushed. Then maybe I'm not a Christian. I want to be reconciled to God and I just am having a very bad time of it. I keep sinning. Does this mean I'm not a Christian? It doesn't mean that at all. Are you trusting that Christ has forgiven your sins and that he has reconciled you to God. You are his son or daughter and then you are fighting against sin. That when you sin, you repent and you want God to not only forgive you but to cleanse you of that sin, to restore you to acting like a child. Dear friends, his promise is sure that we will have his relationship with the Father. Now, there's crowds and there's churches, as we've said. And the privilege and the comforts belong to a church, belong to those who confess that Jesus is Christ and desire that they would be saved, not just from the punishment of their sin, but from their sin itself. And God has actually formed churches in a way that looks like how he has formed the church. You understand that there is one church, and that is just anyone who trusts in Jesus to save them from sin and reconcile them to God. Anyone. That's one church. But God has also broken up his one church into churches, local churches where we can actually enjoy these things, where we can know people and be known. And he has established these churches in the same way, that you are joined there, not simply by being around each other, just like items in a junk drawer are around each other a lot, but they don't belong to one another. They're not committed to one another. But members of the same body are not simply just around each other a lot, but they are joined together. And what is it that joins a person to a church? It's the same thing that joins somebody to the church. You confess faith in the gospel to those people. They hear you say that. They check against the scripture to see if your faith is in the gospel. And they say, you're part of our church. Not because you've hung around us a long time where we think that you'd be a great addition, but because your faith is in the same gospel. And so we're going to treat you as a Christian. That's one of the things that baptism is meant to demonstrate. We examine Cindy's faith. Now, she might be lying to us. We are sure she's not. But we examine her faith against scripture. She's got Christian faith. She's got gospel faith. She, we now embrace her as part of our church. And the Lord's Supper 
is the ongoing way in which we do that. A church says to all the people that have joined themselves to the church by confessing their faith to us, saying, we still think you're a Christian. We still think you're a Christian. We still think that your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ and we want to give you the signs of God's promises to you. Now maybe you are a Christian and have never joined yourself to a church. Ask them to examine your faith and therefore treat you as belonging to them. Not just like pieces in a junk drawer, but as body parts belong to one another. I'd encourage you to do that. It doesn't have to be this church. Any church that preaches the same gospel, say, I want to belong to you. And I want that belonging to be based on faith in Christ. And if you, we're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper right now, and if you are not part of a church, if you don't belong to a church, by that church hearing your faith and you confess your faith and examining that faith, hey, that's gospel, that's Bible faith, that's Christian faith, then we'd ask that you watch. You watch as we celebrate. And look forward to when you can celebrate the Lord's Supper, when you join a church by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you're not a Christian and you are here. We are so glad you're here. These are promises that are not yet for you, but can be yours if you turn from your sins and trust in the gospel of Christ. I'm going to ask the elders to come forward as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And as they do, I'm going to pray for us that the Lord would prepare our hearts. Well, Father in heaven, we are grateful that you have not just gathered a crowd, people loosely interested in all kinds of things, but rather than that, you have gathered a church. A church that is not merely associated with you, but belongs to you. The way that hands belong to bodies and ears belong to bodies. Father, we confess that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We confess that what happened to Christ on the cross should have happened to us. That he got what we deserve on the cross. And that he died and that he rose from the dead. And he is our Savior. Father, we confess that we believe in the forgiveness of sins that our sins were paid for by Jesus' death and his resurrection, that in his body on the tree, he bore our sins. Father, I pray that you would work this, uh, this celebration, this Lord's Supper. Would you work it for your glory? But you, would you also work it for our good? Work it to strengthen our faith, to nourish our souls, and that our confidence in Christ Jesus would grow through observing this celebration. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.